welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. I don't know about you, but I cannot concentrate in coffee shops. I, like, if I don't have headphones... I, I cannot get work done there. Do you ever stop into a coffee shop or something? You say, I'm going to get a little bit of work done. And then somebody starts the conversation next to you. Like, if you, just so you know, if you see me at a coffee shop and you're talking in a conversation next to me, I'm in that conversation. <laughs> I'm there. I'm like, what's up? What are we talking about? Like, I'm looking at my computer. I'm pretending to doing, do work, but I'm locked into whatever's happening over there. And like, if you think you're having a private conversation in a coffee shop, you're not, okay? It's just not happening. Do you ever get this way? You get really distracted. I was pulled in recently. I forgot my headphones, and I was like, this is worthless. Like, I'm not going to get any work done. These girls are sitting next to me, and they're talking about this, one of the girls, this boyfriend, you know? I'm like, they're talking about this relationship. And I'm like, oh, I'm in. Like, you don't want me in this conversation, but this is drama right here. Let's go. So I'm, like, looking at my screen. They're talking. You know, she's like, I'm adventurous. Like, you know, like, I, I'm spontaneous, you know? And he's not. Like, he plays video games. She just likes to sit at home. By the way, I always want to hear that reversed, you know? I just want to hear, like, he's spontaneous and adventurous. I like to sit home and play video games. I want to hear that breakup, okay? Anyways, this was more of the classic one. She's like, I want to go to the beach, and he just wants to stay at home, all that stuff. And, and they're talking, and she's, and, you know, the girl's like, maybe it's time to break up with this dude. Like, you guys are a bad match. And then I hear what you've heard before, maybe even you've said before. Like, the girl says to the girl who's debating breaking up, she goes, girl? And I'm like, go on. <laughs> she's like, girl, live your truth. You heard this, right? Yeah, we, talk, we talked about this at Awakening. Like, this is a common thing in our culture. Like, you got to live your truth. He's going to live his. His truth is Fortnite. Yours is the beaches of Santa Cruz. Live your truth, girl, right? Like, we've heard about that. We, we've talked a lot at Awakening because it's a really important thing in Christian life that truth is subjective today. So we got to start there. The way that we think about truth is in a subjective manner. You live your truth, I'll live mine. It, it, we take that into relationships, into dating. We take that into religion. I'm not so much interested in that. We've talked about that a lot at Awakening. Here's what I'm interested in this morning as we talk about the road less traveled and we journey with Jesus on this narrow road at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. I am interested in where does that philosophy lead? I'm interested in what Ryan talked about last week, which is there are no philosophies that don't end up somewhere. There are no thoughts that don't end up somewhere. You know, the lie that Ryan was talking about last week was saying, life's all about the journey, not the destination. Well, the very definition of a journey is to arrive at a, at a destination, is it not? And so therefore, we cannot be thinking that life is just about a journey. It's both about the journey and the destination. It's both about where you're going and how you get to where you're going, okay? Life is more complicated than that, and that's a ridiculous philosophy that leads to a terrible place. 
And likewise, I'm thinking, where does live your truth lead us? Or where has it led us? Because that's something I remember in college over a decade ago. I remember thinking and hearing that of how your truth can be your truth and my truth can be my truth. We're all going up the same mountain towards God. You take this path, I take this path. We're just living our own truth, but it's all the same thing. We're going to paint our houses with a color scheme. You pick the color scheme. It's all just a house, though. And so you can paint in any vibrant color that you desire. But at the end of the day, it's just a house. It's all the same. It's okay. Well, where has that led us? That led us to 2016. In 2016, after the election, Oxford Dictionary always releases word of the year. And if you're an English major like me, it's like the Oscars. You're like, let's go, baby. <laughs> like, I want word of the year. And you're like, okay, I'm done with this sermon. <laughs> like, don't, don't turn me off yet, okay? Um, for real. Word of the year tells you something about the culture. They talk about how much it's used. They think about its efficacy for the year that it just came out of. And the year, 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. It's a hyphened word, so it's kind of cheating, but that's what English majors do. Post-truth. Post-truth was the word of the year. It was chosen by this group of scholars who called it potentially one of the most defining words of our time. It's defined this way. Post-truth is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. This is where we get the modern political, media, cultural terminology of things like alternative facts. It's the where... So what innocently began as you live your truth has now become harnessing different facts and aggregating different levels of understanding to uphold a narrative you've already put in pre-existence. You see, you've already got this narrative, you've already got this story, you've already got the spin on this candidate, this character, this story, the way it goes, and we can dismiss any fact we want and collect different facts that end up leading us to sustain a narrative that could be not true. Yeah, see, an innocent little lie has now led us to this place, an innocent little truth, a potentially innocent truth, right? Turns out to be disastrous. Live your truth. Oh, you're going up this mountain, I'm going up this mountain. Now we can just say, oh, you're supporting this candidate, so you look at this kind of information. You're supporting this candidate, look at this kind of information. It's led us down a path to where we now, instead of having the truth shape our minds, now our minds have shaped the truth, you see? And we're backwards. Now, leading down this direction, leading this way, we've all received wrong directions before we got on this wrong path. You see, this is what's so interesting about something like live your truth. We've all been like the girl in the coffee shop to the other girl, receiving teaching, receiving philosophy from someone else, and we received that, and it led us down a different path. Someone told us at some time to do this or do that or not do this or not do that. We've received a kind of philosophy and it's moved us down a different path. I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people since youth ministry days. I've been in ministry over a decade and talking with people about their walk with Jesus and they've been on the great path, the narrow path. They've been in a path of joy but of difficulty. They've been in a path of discipleship to Jesus and then they started dating someone. And then they got into a church that had poor leadership. Then they got swayed by some teachers and philosophizers and cultural critics and intake in media 
And they've swerved. They've gotten off the wrong path. Why? Because they've received this information. It's led them down the wrong path. Who we listen to along the path really, really matters. How can we discern what is right? Yeah, right? We have a, a day today where we have more information than ever. We know this. Books, podcasts, videos, articles, lectures, degree programs. We can get any kind of information anywhere. And yet, without the truth, what does all of it matter? None of it matters. None of it matters if we cannot discern what is true and what is not. Yeah. So, how do we do this? How must we discern what is true? Here's what I think. Guys, as if you're Christian today, you have an invitation, a door is kicked open to you to have one of the rare commodities of the 21st century, which is wisdom. In an age of information, the most important thing you can possess is wisdom. Knowledge at some level will become democratized, but wisdom to discern what is true and what is false will become the commodity of which Christians must possess. And in our search for that, Jesus Christ spoke these words thousands of years ago if we ever think that a post-truth society is some new thing. Now it's just a new way to lie. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7, verse 15. Concluding the Sermon on the Mount, in the last couple lines, we have this section, and then next week we're covering the last two sections. Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware, might be translated, watch out, look out of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them, the false prophets, by their fruits. This is a warning. This is an alarm bell. This is a deep sense of urgency in here. And now, wherever you stand with Jesus, if you're the person who's looking on the outside in, and you're thinking, I'm not really a Christian, I still would tell you that Jesus Christ, being the man whose word has lasted longer, much longer than your short life, should potentially listen to this wise man. But for us Christians, if this is our Lord and Master, if this is our King, and He says, not Chris Nye, but He says, watch out for false prophets and people who would lead you astray, should we not perk our ears up a little bit? Should we not take heed of his warning this morning that something is wrong and somebody is out to get us? Yeah, Jesus says, beware. Spiritual imposters exist. Things are not always as they seem. And some of us were, I've learned in, in dealing with people, man, we all exist like on a spectrum of trust. And some of us, most of us, maybe, who were, who were raised in a home where the adults didn't let us down at an early age, we're on this spectrum of trust where we easily trust people, okay? We easily accept people. That's like me. I meet you, I'm like, you're my best friend. Like, how you doing? Like, I love you, and I trust you. Where are we going, right? That's because most likely, at an early age, the adults in my life just didn't let me down. For some of you, you grew up in a home where the adults in your life let you down quickly and constantly, and that developed in you a skepticism to which you're on the other end of the spectrum of me. And you're like, every person you meet, you're like, why are you lying to me? 
Like every person, like you're doing that with me right now. You're like, this dude? What's this dude have to say? Who is this guy? How old is he even? What's he doing with the haircut? What's that? What are we doing? Like, that's the posture that you bring to any teacher or any person, right? Now, here's the deal. Wherever you exist on that spectrum, if you're easily trusting or easily skeptical, Jesus is still warning you, like, watch out for false prophets. Now, false prophets is kind of a religious terminology, and you might not even know what a prophet is. A prophet is a person who speaks for God. So, therefore, a false prophet can be defined as those who speak falsely using God's name. A prophet simply communicates the things of God to the, to the people. And a false prophet is going to take the things of God and thwart them, twist them, turn them, and use God's name to speak falsely. In the Old Testament, Jesus was using this term that would have almost opened up the doors to a lot of Old Testament thinking. If he was saying this, right, to some disciples who had some background in the Hebrew Bible, Jewish people would instantly start to understand what he meant. They would go back to texts like Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22, early in the story. The law of God is being developed. The society of the Hebrew people are developing particular laws to guide their, uh, their nation. And one of the laws was against false prophets in Deuteronomy 18. And what is said back there is that if someone uh, makes a proposition in God's name, and it says uses the Lord's name or the name of Yahweh, right, which is the Jewish name for God, Okay, if someone says a proposition or a prediction or anything and says that it is in the name of Yahweh and it doesn't come true, written in the law is that that person, person should die. So, this is a very egregious sin to use God's name and to thwart and change its message, to use it for personal benefit or to speak falsely and to still claim God's name. Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 14 Jeremiah the prophet says that if a prophet declares peace during a time of unrest or has like kind of peaceful, easy rhetoric during a time of great injustice, that person is quote-unquote an abomination, which is the strongest Hebrew term to push against any action. It's to call it an abomination, right? So if you say, if the prophet is up there, some teacher, some person who's claiming to speak for God and going, hey guys, I know there's a lot of injustice, but like things are cool, right? Like we're cool, you're cool, we're good. If someone's doing that, like the the prophet Jeremiah is saying, that's an abomination because it's speaking falsely using God's name because God hates injustice and God wants his prophets to speak against injustice and they won't be silenced. In Jeremiah 14, 15, God says of false prophets, they are prophesying to you, the people of Israel, a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds, right? Meaning the madness of their own minds is being spewed out to the people of God, and God's like, that's not of me. That's not mine. It was a very, very big deal, which is why Jesus is like, watch out for people like that who claim God's name and speak falsely. The action is alertness, beware, right? That word in, in, in verse, what, 15? Beware of false prophets. The action is alert, alertness and discernment because he uses this metaphor, right? He's saying, outwardly, they look like sheep. They're in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This picture should do enough for you. I don't need to explain the metaphor. They are not who they seem to be. They are dangerous people who are leading you down a dangerous path, and that's why the action is alertness and discernment. This harkens back to Pastor Christina's message back in Matt, when she was talking about Matthew 7, 1 through 6, the passage on judgment, right? Christina said that we, in this teaching Jesus gave, 
He's telling us not to judge our brother and sister, but also to not naively accept all people. He says, don't cast your pearls before swine. This is a way of talking about not leading to bad judgment or judgmentalism, but leading to good judgment, sound judgment. A level of discernment must be made. And Jesus says, what you're going to be discerning, what you're going to be looking at, is you're going to be looking at the fruits. He says it twice. Verses, what, 16 and verse 20. You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by your fruit. That's how you'll know. You'll discern it by looking at their fruit. In other words, what is fruit? Well, the fruit is often a metaphor in all of Scripture that describes the life that is produced out of fellowship with God. So fruit is not ministry growth. Fruit is not a big church. Fruit is not a level of 16,000 followers on Twitter. Okay? That's not fruit. Fruit is the life that is produced out of a fellowship, deep fellowship and relationship with God Almighty. And that that life produces rich, rich fruit of all shapes and sizes, of all kinds and varieties. But something is produced out of a deep life. And I thought the best way for me to help you discern what the fruit is, is to actually look back at a conversation between a man named Paul and a young man named Timothy. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. Paul was a distinguished teacher and a faithful teacher. His work produced much fruit. His work produced churches all throughout the world. In fact, I had a seminary professor tell me if it weren't for Paul, you would probably be worshiping the moon in the West, right? We would probably be pagans if it weren't for Paul. Paul's life had tremendous fruit, and he wrote letters to a young man named Timothy, a Greek man who was studying under Paul to be a pastor, to be a faithful, true prophet of God, one who would speak the word of God with faithfulness and security and truth. And Paul was teaching him through letter writing and through companionship. They traveled together, and when they were apart, he left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor a church in Ephesus, and he continued to share with him. And I thought, let's use Jesus' words to hyperlink us to these other passages. Open up the tabs in our minds to see different passages of Scripture that would lead us towards truth and to discern how this is uh, to be applied. How are we to see teachers? Because here's what I found out. I was studying this passage. I really wanted it to make it about you, but I couldn't. Because <laughs> at some level, here's what this is actually about. This passage, at some level, is more about a person like me than a person like you. Because what am I doing up here? I'm up here opening God's word, telling you what God is saying, and at some level, I wrestled with this text and was like, shoot, (laughs) this is about people like me and my potential to not be the person I say I am. But here's what I also want to say, is while I want to give you some tools to assess teachers in your life, I also want to assess your life, because here's the thing. A prophet is someone who speaks for God, right? A a prophet is a person who uses God's name and invokes God's name to speak. Do you not do this when you say that you're a Christian? Do you not do this when you lead a small group? Do you not do this when you lead a Bible study? When you participate in a Bible study and you loft your opinion out there in a Bible study. You lead a college group. You're leading in children's ministry, leading in youth ministry, right? Think about all the spaces in which you claim to speak for God. The minute you say, well, the Bible, I think, is clear that, ah, really, is it? (laughs) Yeah, you become a teacher. Scripture warns several times to not be quick to be a teacher. And every good person who's training another teacher, I was told this in my life at a young age, someone said, don't want this too bad. 
don't want this too bad. This is, this is a burden. And so I want you to think about these ways we assess teachers through two lenses, right? Now, who's teaching you? But also, okay, how am I teaching? How am I proclaiming? Number one, what do we need to look at? We have to look at the content. It might seem obvious, but it's essential. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. We're going to start in 1 Timothy and end in 2 Timothy. Just take, look through his letters. Just kind of sift through his letters. 1 Timothy 1.6, he says, The aim of our charge, or verse 5, sorry. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, right? Good tree, it's going to produce good fruit. The aim of our charge is love, pure heart, okay? Six, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Ooh, I love this. How many times do we believe someone just because they said it confidently? How many times do we believe somebody just because they seem reasonable? Yeah. You see, what I want to give you is, okay, look for the content. Then I want to show you what wisdom would do, because I told you wisdom's the commodity. We need wisdom. And then there's a discipline that undergirds that wisdom, that without the discipline, there's no way you'll develop it, okay? I'm just going to shoot straight with you. There's no way you'll develop this. Here's what wisdom knows about the content. Wisdom knows the content of the teaching is more important than the presentation of the teaching. So that's why I say, Paul says, these people desire to be teachers of the law. They want to be seen as pastors. They want to be known as pastors. They want to be seen as experts and pseudo-experts on multiple subjects. They loft themselves to be somebody that they are not. And Jesus says to watch out for somebody like that. Paul says, watch out. There's going to be people who make confident assertions, but they know nothing about what they're talking about. And the discipline for us in the 21st century is listening. Very simple, okay? But to truly listen. To not watch. You know how often we watch a teaching? We watch a sermon, but we don't listen to it. We don't see the content. We don't say, where's the Bible in this? Where's the gospel in this? Yeah, we have to have rich ears for listening to understand the content. But also, secondly, let's balance this out. We also need to look at the tone. While the presentation should not matter so much, I think the tone is really, really important. Look what Paul says just a chapter later. Just a little bit down the letter, 1 Timothy 2, verse 16. But, he tells Timothy, avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. It'll be like a disease. It's disgusting. The tone in which we use ends up spiraling into multiple tones that we use to talk to each other. This is essentially describing the internet. Right? The internet was pitched to be the great democratization of society where all voices could be equal. But now, it's really just the loudest and cruelest voice ends up winning. I hate those headlines that say, like, so-and-so destroys so-and-so on Twitter. I'm like, really? Is that, what are we doing here? Like, that's not wisdom. Wisdom knows to be careful of those who communicate godly things in an ungodly way. Like, here's the deal. I see some people where I'm like, yo, I agree with that. But I'm also looking at that going, I would not have said it that way. <laughs> it's mean. It's unkind. Yeah, kindness, scripturally, I once heard it described as having a firm center and a soft exterior. Okay? A firm center. You've got those convictions. 
but there's a softness around those convictions. You see, to be mean is to have a firm center and a firm exterior. And to be a pushover is to have a soft interior and a soft exterior. No, kindness is someone that goes, this is where I stand, but also I don't got to tell you that all the time. I hear, I, this is what I, one of the things I hear, Chris, I just got to get this off my chest. You know what I do? I go, no, no, you actually don't. <laughs> Can I free you right now? You don't. <laughs> I got to get this off my chest. I got to say this. I got to say my mind. I got to speak my mind. I got to say my piece. Actually, you don't. Do you know that? Hmm, yeah, it's freeing. You actually can be quiet. You can actually take a step back. Oh, wait, hold on. As Christians, you can actually pray. You can just pray about these things. Yeah, I think just sometimes I see people with that firm center also have that firm exterior. My mentor, like, I, you know, I send him a lot of things that I read, or I'm like, hey, look at this, like, post. Like, what do you think about this? And there's a refrain that he's given a number of times. He's never taught me to say this, but I've just caught it from him. He's gone like looking and reading something and the tone of the article, he goes, I agree with it, but look, I just, he says this, I just don't know a lot of godly people who talk that way. I've always carried that with me. Like if I'm gonna say something in a small group or I'm gonna teach something on a Sunday, I just, if I'm gonna sound, I need, I need to not just, you know, present godly things. But I need to withhold, and the Old Testament calls this prudence, the discipline of not speaking when you could. You need to practice these disciplines so that the tone you develop is godly. And the only way to do this, by the way, the discipline that undergirds this wisdom is prayer and fasting. I was sharing this with the teaching team, and Nassim was like, well, it's really humility. I said, yeah, but I can't just tell you to go be humble. Wish I could. Can't. Doesn't really work. Um, the thing that develops humility, she's totally right. The thing that develops humility, though, is prayer and fasting. And through prayer and fasting, are you able to realize, I don't got to always speak my mind. In fact, most of the time as Christians, we are not called to stand up for our rights. We're called to lay them down. And Americans want to posture themselves. If, you're, if you were born in this country or raised in this country with a, a decent amount of your life, it's been built into you. It's one of those philosophies that's been built into you. You got to speak your mind. You got to say something. And at some level, biblical wisdom goes, I don't always have to do that because in prayer and fasting, I'm communing with God and I'm wrecked in humility. And I just go, I don't got to speak right now. And the tone, whenever I do speak, it's going to be generous. It's going to include some nuance. It's going to be you know, open to what somebody else might have to say. So it's going to develop that. But the only way you can do it is through prayer and fasting. Three, the context does really matter. When I say the context, I'm not just talking about, I don't want to rant on this for long at all. I'm not just talking about, oh, you saw a two-minute sermon clip. You really need to watch the whole sermon. Um, or, oh, you got this one line from the article. Or, like, my favorite thing is, like, someone saying, I read the article. And it's like, you read the headline. You know, like, let's be honest. Um, you read the tweet that went to it. So I'm not just talking about the larger context. I'm talking about, actually, the context of Scripture. I'm talking about the whole context of Scripture. Look at First Timothy 6. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. There's something precious here. Guard it. Avoid the irreverent babble. He says that again. And contradictions of what is falsely called, quote-unquote, knowledge. I love this. 
for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Yeah, Timothy, guard the deposit. There's a deposit. There's a gospel at stake. There's a larger biblical context here. And if you are not reading your scriptures, if you're not investing in your scriptures, you're going to be swayed by any little tagline or any little thing that sounds kind of nice to you. This is why we do the school of faith. The School of Faith this summer, we're going to un- unleash a ton of classes on you. You can take summer studies and do a ton of studying and read and know your word, understand the Bible, because you've got to know and place that thing. Like when you hear live your truth, you've got to place live your truth into this book. You've got to go, what does this say? And here's what I've learned is as I've grown in the context of Scripture, I go, that doesn't sound like my Bible. I'll just think that all of a sudden. Like someone will say something like, Chris, man, you know, life's just about the journey and not the destination. I'm like, yo, there's a lot of talk of destination in here. Like, are you for real? Have you read this book? Do you know what, like, so, so here's the thing. Here's what wisdom knows. This is why like protege, we give these things to you. Bible reading plan. I have one right here. We're finishing up. I was in Luke, what, 11 or 12 this morning. You got to be in your word. You got to know your word because wisdom knows this. Everything sounds profound when you're not reading You are going to be wowed by anything if you just watch videos. If you don't read your word and if you don't read a book, you're going to be like, whoa, Chris, have you seen this? And I'm like, dude, I was in Psalms this morning. (laughs) You know, I was reading Isaiah. You want to talk about profound? You know, like I was reading eternal words that have lasted thousands of years. Cool video. Like at some level, you've got to have that wisdom that says you're going to be wowed by anything. You're going to be, okay, there's going to be some teacher on Instagram or YouTube, and they're going to be spinning their wheels, yelling passionately, crying. They're going to crack a joke. They're going to be super winsome. But you've got to set that into the context of this word and go, is it true or is it not? Right? You, you, you can't be wowed by everything. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, I think the internet is a friend of information but an enemy of thought. It's great at snippets of information, but it doesn't help you think or reason. (laughs) In fact, the more you're online, the less patient you are with sustained reasoning and with a longer narrative. It doesn't make you more able to think through critical issues. Man, that's so true. Like, I just, I think, especially for my generation, can I just tell you, read your Bible and read some books, man. Like, just read some books. I mean, there's some level where I just go, are you just, where are you getting this? And it's like it sounded good on the internet somewhere. You're like, I liked that, you know? And that's really where it comes from. The discipline is reading. It's just reading. I'm afraid you cannot get it from, you know, uh, looking or watching. You've got to read. You've got to think on your own. That's why, like, at Awakening, we are not interested in, like, telling you what to think as much as we're trying to show you how to think biblically, right? Like, we, we're done with that. Like, I'm not sitting up here telling you how to think. I'm showing you ways in which you can think and be, develop a mind that's actually mature in Christ as opposed to some infancy where you're just following anything you love, which is why at the, in the fourth point, we, we need a motive. We need to look at the motive, 2 Timothy 4. This, this, one's, this one's deep. For the ta- This scripture is so good. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. 
They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We are doing that right now. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Wisdom knows, the motive is important. Wisdom knows this. People believe what they want to believe. And wisdom goes, just because I want to believe it doesn't mean I'm going to totally subscribe to it. Because the motive inside me of going this way or this way, my temperament, my emotional state, is not to be trusted. It's not to be firstly trusted. It's to be taken into consideration. But ultimately, people just want what they already believe to be backed up by experts, right? Like today, I could find you a PhD for like anything you want to believe. It's the internet. I'll Google it. I'll find a PhD or an MD that'll support your lifestyle. And you'll be, you can appeal to that authority all you want. Does that mean it's true? Right? No, we've got to really assess things, especially today. I've met so, I've met a lot of people. And in the middle of my conversation with them, I'm like, teaching the, I'm sharing the Bible with them and I'm hearing what they have to say about their kind of philosophy that they're teaching and suddenly in the middle of it, maybe the Holy Spirit gives me this recognition where I just go, yo, this person just does not want to be a Christian. At some level, the motive, this person just is closed off to anything other than the preconceived notions that have been set up in their lives and they're just looking for pastors to give them the thumbs up. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that for you today. Sorry, like, there's some level at a pastoral counseling meeting where that kind of hits the fan. You can find a sound teacher, you can, or you can find an unsound teacher that can uh, support an unsound lifestyle. Like if you want to live whatever sexual ethic you want, whether it's with a person or through a screen, you can find a teacher to give you that go-ahead. That's the world we live, that's, that's, and I'm telling you, that's why Jesus says, beware. Like you just want to find someone who just supports your life, I, I'll find them for you, okay? But that's not wisdom. That's not the life in Jesus. You want to buy a car or a house or spend your money however you want, there's, there's got to be a Christian book for it. And I, I write Christian books, but there's a Christian book out there that'll support some stupid lifestyle that has nothing to do with the gospel. Man, because, and Paul said, that's to come. That's to be expected. And are you going to just aggregate t- teachers to support your cool life? Or are you going to look at the word of God and say, man, there's a different direction here. This is why seminary messed me up. Man, when I was in seminary, I was like, I, I thought I had things down, okay? And I go to seminary, and I can't make the Bible do what I want it to do. Because you're learning, and you're reading, and you're growing, and your motives are being stripped, and your cultural lenses are being destroyed. And you look at this book, and you go, shoot, shoot. I can't believe that anymore. I remember my friend and I, we were in seminary together. We were both youth pastors and we were joking. We'd be like, I got to delete those sermons. You know, like we were for real, like we were like not on the right path. And like wise people were like, this is what the word really says, dude. And I was like, does it have to say that? And they're like, it just does. You want to disagree with 2000 years of church history? You want to disagree with the New Testament writers? Yeah, see, that's the thing. I was like 26 at the time. And I was like, oh, cool, Ignatius, Augustine, I've got better ideas. Those are church fathers, by the way. But yeah, I was like, I got better ideas. And like God's word is like, yeah, 26-year-old, you got better ideas? Like really, really. See, here's the key question. Like when was the last time 
you received a teaching into your life that went against your temperament and emotional state that led you to change your mind. I'm going to repeat that. When was the last time you received a teaching in your life that went against the way you feel and it led you to change your mind? When I was in seminary, there was a way I was feeling, right? I'm raised in Portland by a couple of hippies. I've got like an emotional state and temperament that I bring to scripture. What happened to me in seminary was I was confronted with the truth and had to receive it and change my mind, right? And continuously, this is what we do when we read God's word. We go, God, I really want life to work this way. I want this to be supported in my life. But God's word says, no, that's why our discipline is community, Godly community. Do you have people in your life who just go, hey, that's false? Uh, right? Hey, you're, I see that path you're heading down. That's the wrong path. Do you know that those people are not enemies of your discipleship, but gifts to your discipleship? Those are the people that help you. Those are the encouragers. Man, we need the community. And finally, the fruit. Let's get back to it. So we've just taken a tour. The hyperlinks were opened. We saw Paul's wisdom to Timothy. We saw all these various ways we can assess the fruit. What is the fruit, though? Because the fruit really matters. Wisdom knows this. Whatever is produced from that life, the fruit is really a revelation of the root, like where it came from. what, what, What somebody says, what they teach, how they live comes from something in their life, deep in their life. What develops this kind of root, this strength, this truth, And you probably want, at this point, you know, I'm a pastor, so you're like, okay, pastor, tell me the right ways to think. But here's the thing. See, surprisingly, Christianity is not rooted in a set of teachings. Christianity is rooted, the root of which the fruit comes, is not in a set of teachings or doctrines, but in a person. Jesus says in our passage today, in verse 20, he says, you shall know them, quote unquote, by their fruit. And I suppose we could take Jesus' words and put them upon his own life. Ah, Jesus, was he a true or false prophet? Yes. Did he, what did he teach and what was the fruit that was produced from his life? And you cannot argue anything else other than that this man led the most fruitful life we've ever seen. He was the one who led the ultimately fruitful life. The one who died and while he was dying was forgiving those who were crucifying him. He was the one who, while held to the cross, could have saved himself, but instead chose to endure that and not save himself, but save us. He was the one who bore sin, who bore shame, who bore death, but out of the grave, raising victoriously, bore not sin, but bore fruit. The fruit being us, the fruit being his church, the fruit being his people, who now sit before us today here, 21st century awakening, and are receiving and still eating of the fruit of his life, here in communion. Why is it wine? Why is it bread? Because it comes from somewhere. It's been developed. And there's a number of parables where Jesus talks about trees, fruits, and seeds. And every time he talks about seeds, where a root and a, and a fruit would come from, he talks about the seed being the word of God, particularly Luke 8:11. He said, the seed is the word of God. And in John 1, it says that the word of God was God and is Jesus. Jesus is the living word. Which is why in John 12, verse 23, Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, to die and to raise in victory. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's he talking about? 
He's talking about him. He's the seed. He's the word who, when it died in the soil, produces the much fruit of the church, produces the great fruit living today where the true prophets live and exist to exalt the name, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the true son of God. Tim Keller put together scholarship of all these religious scholars who looked at the religious figures across all of time. Many of them, nearly all of them, would talk and say that every religious figure received this question. Who are you? (laughs) Right? Like they come up with these new divine revelations and all the communities that these religious leaders, Muhammad and Joseph Smith, Jesus, people say, who are you? Or who do you think you are? But the scholars say that only two received not the question, who are you, but also the question, what are you? What even are you? And those two religious leaders were Buddha and Jesus. And Tim Keller says that Buddha, when confronted with the question, what are you? He would say, I'm just a man. Look at my dharma. Look at my teaching. Look at my sets of teaching. I am not to be worshipped. Look at my teaching. But when that question, what are you, was brought upon to Jesus, he said, I am. I am who am. I am the way. I am the truth. Jesus didn't say, look to my set of teachings. Jesus didn't say, look to my dharma. He said, look to me. You're looking at the living, breathing, embodying truth of God. The word that you read today is birthed out of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is connected to him. And in John 14, 6, Jesus plainly says, I am the truth. Jesus does not just know the truth. He doesn't just teach the truth. He is the truth. And in Christianity, the guiding principle of your life, the, the seed that will bear fruit in your life is not knowing a set of teachings, but knowing a person. Is knowing the one who is the truth, the one who has come to reveal the truth and plant a seed in your life. You see, Jesus said it best. He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He wasn't saying you'll know a set of doctrines, and it'll set you free. He said, you'll know the truth. The truth is me. I will set you free. I am the one who, in fellowship and relationship with me, will lead you in all ways to the power of the truth, and that will set you free. So no longer do you have to police different religious doctrines. No longer do you have to agree or disagree. Your opinion doesn't matter. At the end of the day, what matters is Jesus Christ is living and raised from the dead, and in a relationship with him, you develop a countenance and a humility that helps you sift through the garbage of this world and leads you to the truth of Christ. It's in relationship with him that matters. And so, to the teachers, the listeners, the prophets, and the people, all of us here, here's our question. Will we follow the so-called prophetic voices, self-professed thought leaders, gurus of this cultural moment that offer hype, or will we find the inner source of transformation, the seed, knowing God in fellowship with Jesus, Will we find that and produce a life of fruit? That's the question before us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. Heavenly Father, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, you provide the way. You provide the truth. And you have provided knowledge of you. We can know you today Holy Spirit, convict us now. Holy Spirit, encourage us now. For those of us on the path of truth, 
wading off false prophets. God, encourage us. Give us wisdom. Give us the fellowship with you, Jesus. God, for those that have led astray, God, for those who have wandered, God, would you convict us to bring us back to you? Holy Spirit, as we worship, I desire you to transform and change us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.